Well, Happy New Year, friend. Glad you haven't resolved to quit on me yet. In fact, I heard this show is great to listen to at the gym. So, until you cancel your new membership in two weeks or so, I'm sure we'll spend plenty of time together. Good tip, Chester. Once you give up on that Bowflex machine, it'll make an excellent towel rack. Not a sponsor. Come on in, amigo. Let's start the new year off right. Mmm. Alright, smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. To ring in the new year, we've got a tale from our friend W.B. Stickle. Once Mr. Season Finale, now the man of all seasons. This one's a tale of cosmic horror wrapped up neatly in an old lunchbox. So, without further delay, I give you, from author W.B. Stickle, The Lunch Pail. All right, Mr. Martin said as he handed out the last batch of quizzes. I hope everyone did their reading assignment last night because this one has proven to be a bit of a doozy. A collective grumble circulated through the class, which he swiftly quelled by arching his left eyebrow. By this point in the year, they each knew his nonverbal cues by heart, with the eyebrow thing being the most serious. Not exactly the response I was hoping for, he said, his words laced with disappointment. Usually you guys and gals lead the way. You know, set the standard. He waited a beat to let that sink in then sucked his teeth and retreated to his desk at the head of the class. Watch out for question five in particular, he added as he took a seat. The earlier classes all stumbled with that one. They were in the middle of dissecting Orwell's animal farm, one of Mr. Martin's all-time favorites. Question five centered on how Napoleon had chosen to express his contempt for Snowball's windmill plans. Despite his having foot-stomped the need to fully understand the passage, it was still the highest-missed question of the day. Thinking of ways to fix it, he glanced up at the clock mounted above the room's massive whiteboard. It's currently 1.30, he said. You have until 1.45 to complete your quiz. Get to it. The room erupted in a flurry of quiz sheets being flipped over, then descended into silence as the students set to work answering their questions. Pleased, Mr. Martin shifted his attention from his class and focused on the stack of papers sitting on the desk before him. Yesterday's persuasive writing assignment. They weren't due to be graded until the end of the week, but Mr. Martin saw no reason to put off scoring them, especially since everyone had turned their assignments in on time. No time like the present, he thought, as he set his first essay in front of him. A slim little offering from Nick Ashton, titled... Why VR is better than PC and game console. 
Retrieving his red grading pen from his pen cup, Mr. Martin glanced up and did a perfunctory scan of the class to ensure they were all aptly engaged in the task at hand. By and large, they all were, with two surprising exceptions. The first was Mike Goldman, who seemed to be frozen in place with a pained expression on his face. The second was Kevin Dunlop, who for some damnable reason had decided to stare up at the ceiling instead of down at his quiz. Bemused, Mr. Martin folded his arms across his chest and spotted them a few moments to find their focus. After about ten seconds, Mike Goldman hesitantly picked up his pen and began answering the first of the quiz's five essay questions. Kevin Dunlop, on the other hand, kept his attention trained on the ceiling. Mr. Martin took in a patient's harnessing breath and addressed the boy. Everything okay, Kev? He said, drawing looks from the other students. I'm fairly certain none of the answers are up there. Kevin's eyes ticked toward Mr. Martin briefly before darting back to the ceiling. Oh no, Mr. M, he said in an airy tone. They're all up there. Are they now? Mr. Martin replied. Yes, sirree. Mr. Martin pursed his lips and surveyed the bone-white ceiling tiles. Strange. I don't see anything. Oh, Kevin said. You will. Unsure what to make of that, Mr. Martin adjusted his wire-rimmed glasses and straightened his purple instructor's blazer. And good to know, Kev. But as you are aware, we're taking a quiz right now. So knock off whatever this is and get back to work. Kevin's eyes ticked back to Mr. Martin, and a weird grin materialized on his face. I have a better idea, Mr. M, he said, lifting his hands in the air. Watch this. His hands kept rising, floating up above his head like weather balloons. When they could go no higher, Kevin levered his wrist forward and crooked his fingers, giving him the impression of an old-timey magician about to perform some grand trick. Patience withering, Mr. Martin took a sterner tone with the boy. Kevin, I don't know what's gotten into you today, but if you keep this up, I'll be forced to... Before Mr. Martin could finish the thought, Kevin uncrooked his fingers and slammed his palms down hard against his desk's laminate surface. The resultant thunderclap drew a chorus of gasps from his fellow classmates. No stopping it now! He brayed, slapping the desk again. A heartbeat later, Kevin was on his feet, plucking a textbook from the tray beneath Susie Stanton's desk. Hey! Susie exclaimed. Put that back. Kevin smiled at her, almost sympathetically, then began tearing pages from the book. Doesn't matter, he told her, tossing the pages into the air. Not one bit. He quickly repeated the rip-toss process several more times, and within seconds, the classroom resembled a shaken snow globe. Mr. Martin watched the scene unfold in a state of mute astonishment. In his seven years teaching at Hawkins, he had never experienced anything like this. In truth, aside from a couple of half-hearted verbal spats that fizzled out on their own, he'd had a rather peaceful tenure at the academy, quite the antithesis to the five hellish years he'd spent at the Audubon Middle School in L.A., where dealing with conflict was part of his daily routine. Mr. Martin, make him stop! 
The shrill plea, issued from Lily Laprario's pinched jowls, jolted Mr. Martin out of his little stupor. Shit, he thought. I'm losing the room. At Hawkins, losing control of one's room was cardinal sin number two, right behind inappropriate touching of students, both fireable offenses. With this heavily in mind, Mr. Martin vaulted out of his seat and summoned all the fire and brimstone he could muster. Mr. Dunlop, he bellowed. Stop that at once! His words resonated through the room, bringing everything to an abrupt halt. Kevin himself froze mid-page rip, while everyone else snapped too like soldiers told to tin hut. Glad the tactic worked, but eager to press the advantage, Mr. Martin pointed to the classroom's sole door and said, Out! Now! Yeah, Susie Stanton said, her face twisted with rage. Get out, you jerk! Kevin blinked numbly at the girl. A whirl of genuine confusion eddied in his eyes. You don't understand. You haven't seen it. You need to- Kevin, Mr. Martin said, cutting him off. I gave you an instruction, and I expect you to follow it. If you don't, we're going to have a much bigger problem. Kevin considered Mr. Martin's words and offered a solemn nod. Yes, sir, he said, his confusion clearly deepening. I just... He turned to his left and looked down at Ethan Kellogg, who sat in the desk directly behind his. Ethan, the newest Hawkins enrollee, stared straight ahead, offering no sign that he was even aware of Kevin's presence. Show them, Kevin pleaded, gesturing toward the metal lunch pail perched between Ethan's feet. Leave him alone. It was Celia Williams this time. Celia and Susie were BFFs, and Mr. Martin was fairly certain that she and Kevin had dated sometime in the recent past. Just do what Mr. Martin said she urged him. And go before you get into more trouble. Showing no sign that he had even heard her, Kevin kept staring at Ethan, eyes pleading for the boy to respond. Ethan, however, just kept staring straight ahead as if lost in a daydream. Last warning, Mr. Martin growled. Seeming to realize he wasn't going to get what he wanted from the new kid, Kevin slumped his shoulders dropped Susie's ruined textbook and slowly made his way out the door. Good luck, dumbass, Mike Goldman muttered as Kevin shuffled by. The two were teammates on the lacrosse team. Kevin paused as if he intended to respond, but then exited the room without another word. As soon as the door clicked shut behind him, Susie eased out of her desk and set to work, gathering up all the scattered pages. What an asshole. She grumbled to herself. Nick Ashton got up to help her. Mr. Martin, meanwhile, removed his glasses and massaged the bridge of his nose. Thanks, guys, he said. He slid the glasses back on and addressed the class as a whole. Look, I don't know what was going on with Kevin, but I promise I'll get to the bottom of it. In the meantime, please finish your quizzes. Don't worry, the grade won't count. I'll be back before the end of the period. Hoping that was true, Mr. Martin collected what remained of his wits and went to deal with the boy. According to the Academy's official brochure, the architect behind Hawkins' impressive structures has been obsessed with neoclassical design. 
During his first tour of the campus, Mr. Martin saw evidence of this everywhere he looked. Every building, every courtyard, every corridor was infused with either Baroque or Gothic arrangements, often both. It wasn't quite Hogwarts, but it wasn't far off either. Out of all of it, Mr. Martin was most enthralled by the tall atrium-style windows that capped all of the building's second-story passageways. On cloudless days, the windows allowed in oceans of natural sunlight, making the forsythia walls and ochre linoleum appear as if they were on fire. He found Kevin standing beneath one such window, eyes closed, face upturned to soak in the afternoon sun. Mr. Martin approached the boy cautiously, stopping a few feet away. Okay, bud, let's have it. What's this all about? About? Kevin echoed. Oh, nothing. And everything. It's all the same, you know? His voice had a strange quality to it. No, Mr. Martin replied. I don't know. Why don't you explain it to me? Kevin shook his head, and as he did, the intense sunlight shimmered wildly off his curly black hair. Can't, he said. It's just something you gotta see. And like this. So saying, he stripped off his blue student's blazer and casually dropped it onto the floor. See? Mr. Martin stared in disbelief. Kevin, he said. Have you lost your mind? I'm trying to show you. Kevin said and began stamping his feet all over the esteemed garment, an act tantamount to flag burning at Hawkins. See it now? <laughs> A ragged giggle burst from his mouth like staccato gunfire. <laughs> Listening to it echo through the large hallway, which had always boasted great acoustics, a discouraging question surfaced in Mr. Martin's mind. What if this wasn't a garden variety tantrum? What if the kid really had blown a mental gasket? If so, Mr. Martin followed that thread to its inevitable conclusion, and his heart sunk a little. By rule, all suspected mental episodes had to be reported up the chain, and once that happened, administration was required to make a determination about the student's future at the school. While such episodes were rare at Hawkins, the ones Mr. Martin knew of all met unfavorable outcomes. Mr. Martin let out a long sigh. Kevin, he said, please stop so that we can take a walk downstairs. See Mrs. Skelly? Mrs. Skelly was the school's head counselor. To his surprise, the boy actually stopped. All at once, his legs quit pistoning, his feet went still and he sort of just sagged there like a deactivated robot. Across the hall, a door creaked open. Everything okay, Bill? A voice inquired. Mr. Martin turned to find Mr. Hawthorne's hulking form poised in the opposite classroom's doorway, his caramel brown eyes surveying Kevin's odd stance. Mike, Mr. Martin said, relieved to see the man. Yeah, not really. He explained what had transpired and asked Mr. Hawthorne to keep an eye on his class while he escorted Kevin down to administration. Sure, Bill. Sure, Mr. Hawthorne said. Take your time. Thanks, Mr. Martin said, patting Mr. Hawthorne's brawny shoulder. Of all the people he worked with at Hawkins, Mr. Hawthorne was the only one he actually considered a friend. Well, let me update my students, get them working on something. 
then I'll take them down. Sounds good, Mr. Hawthorne said, picking up the discarded blazer. Here. Kevin merely smirked at him. No thanks, the boy said. I don't need it anymore. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. After assigning his own students an extra sheet of linear functions, Mr. Hawthorne slipped out of his classroom and plodded across the hall to Mr. Martin's room. Sorry, Kev, he said, thinking how unfair the universe was sometimes. Kevin was a good kid, academically sound, perpetually bright and happy, always courteous and respectful, a kid thriving in the prime of his adolescence. A mental break like this just wasn't fair. Wishing the kid well, he grasped the room's door handle and began to lever it open. As he did, a distinctly feminine voice bleated out, Just show us already! from somewhere beyond the door. Startled, Mr. Hawthorne loosened his grip on the handle and just listened for a moment. More words came from the feminine voice and from other students, but he was only able to make out little snippets. Abruptly curious to know what he was walking into, Mr. Hawthorne glanced up at the small intercom panel mounted next to the door. The panel, a fixture among all Hawkins classrooms, allowed authorized faculty members to listen in on a teaching session without disturbing the teacher conducting it. As a senior staff member, Mr. Hawthorne had a code for the panel, though he had never actually had reason to use it before. Figuring this was as good a reason as any, he punched in his code and pressed the little red listen button. At first, all he heard was silence. Then Susie Stanton's voice leapt from the device's little speaker. What's in there already? The girl said. A gift, came a boy's reply. From my dad. He was kind of famous. Maybe you've heard of him? Tom Kellogg? Murmurs rippled throughout the room, but no one said they were familiar with the name. Mr. Hawthorne recognized it, though, and deduced the reply had come from Ethan Kellogg. Doesn't matter, Ethan said. All that matters is this. There was a faint creaking sound. He left it in my room the night he went away. 
Mr. Hawthorne disengaged the intercom. His normally serious countenance softened. Like most news-watching Americans, he knew the Kellogg boys' story well. Such tragedy, such heartache. Was it possible the kid had chosen this quiet moment to talk about what he had been through? After only a couple of days being around this particular group of kids? If so, it was a pretty momentous deal. Often to give the boy a chance to say his piece, the big man strolled down to the end of the hall and gradually made his way back, allowing three full minutes to elapse. This time, when he got to the door, he went right in. Principal Hume sat back in her leather office chair and pondered everything Mr. Martin had just told her. And you have no inkling what set the boy off? She asked. No, ma'am, Mr. Martin replied. The principal, who could have passed as Kate Blanchett's twin sister, looked at her computer's flat screen and reviewed Kevin Dunlop's personal file. As you are no doubt aware, Mr. Dunlop's conduct warrants immediate expulsion, investigation to follow. I'll have to call his parents and have them arrange for someone to come fetch him. She went to reach for her desk phone, but withdrew her hand and touched a finger to her lips. Out of curiosity, Bill, you currently have Ethan Kellogg in your classroom, correct? Correct. Had he any interaction with Kevin at any time before Kevin's outburst? Mr. Martin ran through the last two days in his head. As far as he recalled, Ethan had been mouse-quiet the entire time, never raising his hand and only given the tersus of replies when called upon. Mostly he just sat there gazing ahead or staring down at that old metal lunch bell of his, the one with NASA embossed on the lid. I don't believe so. Why? Not sure, said Principal Hume. It's just... I got a funny feeling from the boy when his aunt enrolled him on Tuesday. She seemed a bit off, too, come to think of it. Babbled quite a lot. Quirky as hell. Understandable, given the circumstances, Mr. Martin said. Three months earlier, Ethan's father, the celebrated astronaut Major Tom Kellogg, had murdered Ethan's mother in the middle of the night, then put a shotgun in his own mouth and pulled the trigger. According to various news agencies, the elder Kellogg had carried out the last part in Ethan's bedroom while Ethan was awake to see it all. True enough, the principal agreed. But I've seen my share of traumatized kids, and what I saw in Ethan's eyes, well, it raised a flag, you know? The principal at Briary Hills mentioned something similar when I spoke with him prior to Ethan's transfer. Nothing concrete, just an impression he had gotten. After the disturbance with the other students, he said he'd wished he had acted on it. Mr. Martin arched an eyebrow. While he wasn't privy to the details, he had heard a little about what had transpired at the other school. The suicide and something about students attacking other students. What exactly did you see? he asked. I don't know. I guess you would say it was sort of a calculating... Her explanation was cut short by a scream from the office next to hers. Oh my God, Kevin, somebody help! It was Mrs. Skelly. Mr. Martin and Principal Hume both shot out of their chairs and scrambled into the counselor's office. They found the real thin woman stooped over a sprawled out Kevin Dunlop, 
her bony hands held out toward the boy but not actually touching him. Spots of red stained her tawny skirt. Mr. Martin edged in beside her to get a better look at Kevin, a move he regretted the instant he saw the pencils. Oh, Christ, he said. Tears streamed down the counselor's pale cheeks. They were on the desk. I was just trying to get him to talk to me when he grabbed them and did that. Mr. Martin knelt over the boy and examined the injuries. The number two pencils were buried an inch deep in the kid's eyeballs, their eraser ends sticking out like arrow fletchings. There was blood, but less of it than Mr. Martin would have expected. Mr. Martin put his hand on Kevin's chest. The boy had a heartbeat and he was still breathing. Principal Hume snatched Mrs. Skelly's desk phone and dialed campus security. After relaying what had occurred, she set the receiver down and peered at Kevin. The boy, coming back to consciousness, whooped and clapped his hands clumsily. <laughs> it doesn't help! He brayed, clapping again and again. Drool oozed from his mouth and piss blossomed down his pant legs. No, sir! Doesn't help at all! Climbing the stairs to the second floor ten minutes later, Mr. Martin pondered what to say to his students about their troubled classmate. The truth was likely the best option, though he'd have to edit out the grislier parts. Whatever he decided, he'd have to make it quick. The police and emergency services were on the way, as were Kevin's parents, and Principal Hume wanted him back down to her office before everyone arrived. As he reached the top of the stairwell, his musings took an unexpected detour and he found himself deliberating how nice, how utterly goddamn resplendent it would be to stop by Haverty's later and knock back a few shots of Jaeger. He would do no such thing, of course, because doing so would end his five-month stint on the wagon, and it would destroy his chances of ever getting his family back, something he had been working on for over a year now. No, after work, he would drive straight home, pop open a can of A&W and fall asleep in front of the TV, like a responsible adult. Stay on task, dummy, he told himself as he exited the stairwell. Your family needs you. At present, his students needed him even more. They needed his strength and assurance, and he couldn't let them down. He crossed the hall to his door, cleared his throat, and entered the bedlam that used to be his classroom. Having grown up in a house run by alcoholic slobs, Mr. Martin knew a thing or two about untidiness. As a means of coping with the squalor of his childhood environs, he cultivated an unusual passion for cleaning at an early age. Crossing into adulthood, that passion had burgeoned into an OCD-level obsession, as evidenced in the pristine condition in which he kept his classroom. When he had left to bring Kevin down to administration, the room had been relatively ship-shape, save for the pages Kevin had ripped from Susie's textbook. What lay before him now scarcely resembled that room. Desks and cabinets were scattered everywhere, some upside down, others tipped onto their sides. Windows were smashed, their blinds pulled down and plucked apart. Across the floor, masses of folders, books, and paper were strewn like scholastic confetti. 
and strange red symbols adorned the room's earth-toned walls. His brain processed all of this in a matter of seconds before moving on to the far more disturbing issue of the students themselves. Of the 15 he had left in Mr. Hawthorne's care, eight were currently loping about the room like feral monkeys, cooing and cawing and attacking anything that struck their fancy, including each other. Three others, Nick Ashton, Mike Goldman, and Lily Laprario, had in the meantime taken to painting the class's walls with red-tipped fingers. Each babbled incessantly as they created their strange art, their tongues spewing rabid streams of gibberish. Doesn't last long. Doesn't last long. Lily Laprario mewled as she scampered over to Max Hoffman's body, which lay prostrate beneath the classroom's whiteboard. When she got to the dead boy, she went down on her haunches and jammed her hand into the pulsing gas that used to be Max's throat, re-tipping her fingers in the crimson paint. At the back of the room, Susie Stanton and Celia Williams were no better off. The two girls stood facing each other, exchanging fierce headbutts. Judging by how bloody and misshapen their faces were, Mr. Martin reckoned they'd been at it a while. Then there was Ethan Kellogg. Unlike the rest of his classmates, Ethan had elected to remain seated at his desk. He bore a placid expression and sat with his hands perched atop his lunch pail. Taking note of the fact that Mr. Martin was looking at him, the boy opened the pail's lid and made a beckoning motion. You ought to look, Bill, Mr. Hawthorne said from somewhere to Mr. Martin's left. Mr. Martin jerked his head in that direction and was alarmed to discover his friend lurking in the classroom storage closet, shirtless and crouching over a much smaller woman. Mike? Mr. Martin uttered. Mr. Hawthorne gave a slight tick of the head but did not take his gaze off the woman trapped beneath him. Mr. Martin couldn't see the woman's face, buried as it was in a pool of blood but he noted the frizzy gray hair and liver-spotted hands and deduced that it was Mrs. Stansbury from down the hall. Why Mr. Hawthorne would be crouching over the crotch of the old bat like that was beyond his comprehension. Jesus, man, he uttered. What the hell are you doing? As if in response, Mr. Hawthorne grabbed a handful of gray hair and yanked upwards, revealing a red mass of muscle and bone where the woman's face should have been. Mr. Martin gasped and stumbled backward into the classroom. Mr. Hawthorne's eyes at last drifted up from his quarry and found Mr. Martin. Wanted to see what lay beneath the mask, he said. I always knew Judith was ugly on the inside too. On the floor in front of the dead woman lay a pair of yellow-handled scissors, the same kind Mr. Martin kept in his desk drawer. Mr. Hawthorne leaned over, snatched the scissors, and jammed them into the side of the woman's head. Wrong this whole time, Bill, Mr. Hawthorne said with the tenor of someone talking about global warming or the A's chances of winning the pennant. The big man rose to his full height, released Mrs. Stansbury's lifeless body, and faced Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin retreated a step. His instincts screamed for him to flee as fast as he could. Go, now, while you still can. Heeding the impulse, Mr. Martin ripped open the door and bolted into the hallway. An instant later, his shirtless colleague exploded from the room and came barreling after him. 
Mr. Martin made a scared bleating noise and darted for the stairwell. If he could just get to the stairs, he might have a chance. A far superior physical specimen, Mr. Hawthorne closed the gap between them in seconds. By the time Mr. Martin thought to cry out again, Mr. Hawthorne's strong arms had him in a fierce bear hug and was pulling him back down the hall. You gotta see it, Bill, the big man said, squeezing hard. It's a real kick in the pants. Mr. Martin thrashed and kicked, putting everything he had into breaking free, but his friend was too strong. <laughs> Mike, Mr. Martin wheezed. Why are you doing this? Mr. Hawthorne squeezed harder, forcing the air from Mr. Martin's lungs. Mr. Martin's legs buckled and he felt his strength draining from him. A constellation of black spots dotted his vision. Before he knew it, the two of them were back in his classroom. Right this way, Mr. Hawthorne said, dragging him towards Ethan Kellogg's desk. Ethan watched him approach, a faint spark of interest glimmering in his eyes. As they drew within a few feet, Mr. Hawthorne forced Mr. Martin to his knees. Hiya, Mr. Martin, Ethan said. On the desk in front of him sat the NASA lunch pail. Mr. Martin tried to stand up, but Mr. Hawthorne was an immovable force, his grip ironclad. Ethan placed his hands on either side of the pail and slid it forward. Its lid was still open. Look. Mr. Martin attempted to resist, every iota of his being telling him not to look. But something about the pail, some intangible magnetism, pulled his gaze towards the metal box. And he looked. Initially, he wasn't quite sure what lay within. An object of some sort, an irregular black ball, something akin to a piece of coal. <laughs> what? Mr. Martin said. Then his eyes shifted focus and the ball undulated, seemingly collapsing in on itself, its essence there and not there. As he did, he felt a pleasant click in his mind, felt himself drawn in, felt his entire psyche slip into the thing's onyx depths. It was a keyhole, he knew, a pinprick portal through which everything existed, the beginning and the end. The expanse's totality and the void beyond, the entire construct unfurled. It was the enormity of hope and the magnitude of failure. The creation thing's grand and utter disappointment. It was a tiny glimpse of entropy and unraveling, the whole big slate being wiped clean. Mr. Martin experienced this all, the eons and the minutiae, in a blink. In that incalculable span, he came to understand his existence and the existence of all living things. And he laughed out loud, for it was wondrous and tragic and unimaginably funny. He stood and Mr. Hawthorne gave him some space. Ain't that a hoop? The big man said. Mr. Martin beamed up at him. A hoop, he said. Owl, say. <laughs> Mr. Hawthorne guffawed at that and meandered over to the windows where he retrieved a shard of broken glass. 
Mr. Martin resumed surveying the room. His gaze moved from bloodied teenager to bloodied teenager before landing on Mrs. Stansbury's body, specifically the scissors jutting from her head. He so wanted to bury them in his own head to disrupt the vile truths buzzing about his neurons. It was too much, too much, too much. The notion cycled over and over in his head, each pass stripping away another layer of his consciousness. Soon he no longer cared about himself, his family, or the world at large. Excuse me, Mike, he said. There's something I need to borrow from Judith. Ethan Kellogg closed his lunch pail, got up, and moseyed out into the hallway. Across the broad corridor, the door to Mr. Hawthorne's classroom stood open. A number of Mr. Hawthorne's students were gathered at the threshold, drawn from their seats by the sounds emanating from Mr. Martin's room. Ethan eased his way through the group and headed for Mr. Hawthorne's desk. What's going on out there? A tall blonde boy inquired fretfully. What's all that noise? Ethan set the pill on Mr. Hawthorne's desk. Want to see something neat? He said. The blonde boy sneered. Huh? It's from outer space, Ethan said, scrutinizing the rest of the students. Several perked up at the mention of space and gravitated toward Ethan. The others hesitated, torn between their compulsion to know what was going on across the hall and their curiosity regarding the pill's contents. Eventually, curiosity won out and the rest joined their more decisive classmates. Anyone heard of T-168? Ethan asked as they gathered around him. A short red-haired girl with a billion freckles said she had. It's an asteroid, right? Didn't a space shuttle fly up to it a couple months ago? She went quiet and squinted at Ethan. Vague recognition glinted in her eyes. Wait, you're him, aren't you? The new boy whose daddy was on the shuttle. Ethan nodded and touched the lunch pail. He found it up there, half embedded in a chunk of palladium ore. He said there were others, but he felt a connection with this one. So he collected it in a sample container. They moved freely and snuck it aboard. See how it moves? Ethan nudged the thing and it bobbed sluggishly about the pail's interior before settling back in the center. His first night home, he came to my room. He was different. I could see it. He told me about what he had found. Said it needed to be shared with everyone, but he couldn't be the one to do it. His mind was too fragile. I didn't understand. He said it was okay and showed me. But just a quick peek. Enough to see, but still show others. Because everyone needs to know. You're talking nonsense, the red-haired girl said. What is it already? Ethan opened the lid. One of many more to come, he said. And soon, a couple decades may seem like a long time, but it's not. He beckoned them forward. One by one, then they came, each taking their turn and wandering away. Some stayed in the room, 
frothing and keening and caving in on themselves. Others went out into the hallway, eager to spread the inglorious word. After the last of them had had their fill, Ethan closed the pail's lid and exited the room. As he stepped past a pair of students locked in a contest to see who could pull the other's tongues out first, he mused how much better it was going this time around, compared to the previous time at the other school. In the distance, sirens had begun to shriek. Ethan registered this with a wan smile and started down the hall towards Mrs. Stanbury's room. was The Lunch Pail by W.B. Stickle. A good reminder not to look so deeply into things. Not even your pal's lunchbox. A little about the author. Our pal W.B. Stickle lives in upstate New York with his wife and son and a crazy-ass plot hound named Bailey. Bow wow wow yippee-yo yippee-yay. His short fiction has appeared in over a dozen magazines and anthologies. And a growing number of those stories have been featured on podcasts such as this one, wouldn't you know it? He's been working on a novel for the past 20 years or so and intends to finish it at some point within the current decade. Good for you, Stickle. He doesn't have much of an online presence, with Facebook being the only social media platform that he uses with any sort of regularity. So give him a follow on there and remember, he loves Teletubby pictures. Thanks as always, WB. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 Bananas. this is where we part ways at least till next week so grab a drink for the road friend and if you've cleaned up your act for the new year that's great just remember the creation thing couldn't care less hey a big shout out and a happy new year to all my patrons i hope everybody had a safe one this year and remember drew blood loves you
So may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Thanks for enjoying the end times with us, y'all. And until next week, go fuck yourselves. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.